Newsflash. College applications aren't read by robots. They're read by real live human beings. And while that should generally bring you calm because we humans can, for the time being, make much more nuanced decisions about other humans that robots can't make. But maybe this shouldn't instill as much confidence as we'd like. Because in addition to making mistakes, because we are only human after all, we have these annoying things called biases. How do our biases figure into the way we read applications? And how can we control for that so that we're being as fair as possible to all kids? particularly those at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Professor Michael Bastido of the University of Michigan did a study on the biases of hundreds of college admissions counselors and shares his thoughts and findings here. Welcome to The Crush. Folks, I'm Davin Sweeney, an admissions counselor at the University of Rochester, who talks to people who've been doing lots of thinking on topics that relate to the college experience. And in this instance, I talked to a professor of education who is interested particularly in how people like me do their job. And in particular, when it comes to how we read applications, which is sort of the rubber meets the road part of this job, and the part of the job that we're all deeply mired in right now. And the part of the process where the kids who've been doing nothing but preparing for this have really absolutely nothing they can do at this point except sit around and wait. So when it's your job to judge people, like it is mine, for lack of a better term, it's just totally impossible to judge everyone equally and equitably and fairly when you consider all of the things that are brought to bear on that act of judgment. Am I familiar with this kid's background or not? Am I familiar because this is the environment that I grew up in? Am I tired? Am I hungry? Uh, is this the first application I'm reading or the thousandth? Did I just get into a fight with my wife before I sat down to read this application? This is potentially the stuff of nightmares for college applicants and their families and definitely highlights uh, the degree to which this part of the process is utterly out of your control as an applicant. But this also means that we can bend the rules a bit because we don't have a, a whole lot of them. We can decide your terrible SAT scores don't matter to us to give you credit for not having a lot of club involvement and other extracurricular activity in your application because you work 20 hours a week and help your family make ends meet and there's no time for National Honor Society or Color Guard or Boy Scouts or whatever else. I'd argue that this is better than the alternative, which is to disregard context as we'll discuss with Michael Bastido, and instead to look only at numbers and everyone below a certain GPA and score is not allowed in, or something like that. So we spend the first half of the conversation on recent research he's done about how the information we have on an applicant can affect low-income students in particular, and then we switch to the decision-making involved in reading applications in general. We learn about the average amount of time counselors in his studies spend on an individual application, how many applications on average an admissions counselor reads, and how that number can lead to an important psychological concept called ego depletion. I spoke to Dr. Bastido while I was in Columbus, Ohio at the NACAC conference, so the recording will certainly reflect that. We're here at NACAC, and so what that means is that we're in a cavernous convention hall. Indeed. in Columbus, and uh, it's uh, easy to get lost, as you discover. <laughs> yes. Right? Um, but I'm interested in, in talking to you, and I reached out to you initially because uh, I was a, a participant uh, in a, a study that you did uh, uh, featuring 
300 college admissions counselors. Yeah, that's right. So can you talk about that a little bit and what that and what that was? Yeah, sure. So, so I got interested in, in thinking about admissions research because um, one, I think admissions is a really fascinating area to think about how people make decisions, but also my own research is in the area of how people in organizations make decisions, particularly in higher ed environments. And so, can I ask you to t- talk to sort of comment on? where you're located and what you do there? Oh, sure. So I'm at the University of Michigan, and um, I'm a professor of education there, and I'm also the director of the Center for the Study of Higher and Post-Secondary Education, Okay. So, which is a research center and academic program that offers master's and doctoral degrees Got in it. higher education. Okay. And so you've been interested in this area for a while. Yeah. So, I mean, all of my researches have been about organizations and thinking about how people make decisions, basically. And my early work was about governance, and I did work on trustees and presidents, and I'm still interested in that. But um, I also thought admissions would be a really interesting space to think about this because, you know, um, it's a very high-pressure environment in terms of making decisions during the this admission cycle you know um, you know one office I looked at they make it you know they have basically one high-stakes decision every six to eight minutes when they're looking at files right so thinking through you know how people make those choices and what biases that are totally normal human cognitive biases may be affecting that decision-making was interesting to me and then then also what effects those could have on equity um, uh, particularly for low-income students, but also for other kinds of students as well, was also a particular interest of mine. Talk a little bit about research methods and, and, and the, the, how you collected the data that you got and what, and what you got. Yeah, sure. So before I get to the study that you referred to, let me just say a little bit about how I started doing this, which was that I decided I really wanted to understand you know, admissions at a deep level. And so um, during my sabbatical, um, I sort of embedded myself in two different um, admissions offices at flagship public universities and went through training and scored files and interviewed every admissions officer and seasonal reader that would agree to talk to me, mm-hmm. uh, which was a lot, actually. It didn't be about 60. Um, and just to just at a really deep level try to understand, like, where is admissions, you know, in the contemporary context, particularly in institutions where, you know, the, the number of institutions, the number of apps is increasing so rapidly, you know. So, yeah, of course, applications have been going through the roof, right? Right, right. So that's that means I'm, that the processes... That's what I'm supposed to do. Right. So the yeah. processes are changing a lot, right? I mean, it used to be that you could do a lot of reading in committee, maybe. You might have, you know, a lot of people talking about an individual application. You have a more, like, deliberative democracy kind of process. Right. You know, if you have 60,000 applications, 40,000 applications, like, it's just not reasonable anymore. I mean, the costs are just too high, right? So you have to come up with other ways to make equitable decisions, you know, in a shorter period of time with less deliberation. So tell me more about uh, what you what you learned uh, uh, by collecting the, the data that you did from these admissions counselors mm-hmm. and what you, were, what you were particularly curious to find out. So in the study that you participated in, I was particularly interested in the question of context. So how do you think through the information that you have on the high school context and the family context? Yeah. So what we did was... So this is, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, this is how I tend to read applications, right? And I think part of what you've learned, too, is that, you know, people read it differently. Yeah. But, I mean, for me, I think it's, it's really, really important to start there, you know, to mm-hmm. start on that page of the common application where you learn, okay, does this kid have parents, and if mm-hmm. so, how many, and where they go to school, and have mm-hmm. they been, did they go to college, and all those kinds of stuff. It's mm-hmm. a really important lens through which to, to view everything. I think mm-hmm. it's pretty essential. 
Yeah, it can be. Yeah, exactly. But you have to be trained in that way, right? Like you have to be trained to look for that information. And where and when do you look for that information? Or do you only look for it in information in certain kinds of applications, for example? Right. Um, and we're also, I mean, I'm particularly interested too in like, what is the quality of that information? You know, like, so you said that you're relying on the common application information, for example. Another office that I was in didn't see that at all when they were, even though they took Common App, they didn't see that information when they were reading applications. They were looking at high school profile sheets that were produced by, you know, counseling offices. Another office I went to didn't use that Common App information either. They used information that was provided by the state about all the different high schools in that state, right? So um, there's really different. So inter- one way or another, they're trying how to variable get this kind of demographic information. Exactly. Yeah. Of really varying quality, right? I yeah. mean, those profile sheets from high schools, you know, can be a form of propaganda, basically, right? Sure. Which, you know, may not be <laughs> so bad. They're very carefully crafted and considered. Well, they are, yeah. yeah. And especially, I mean, and if your kid is from Phillips Andover or something, like maybe that's not such a big problem. But if, if the application you're reading is from somebody who's from a low-income school where the school is trying to make it look, look better than it is, yeah. it actually could be damaging the chances of that kid being admitted because they no longer look as exceptional in their context as they would if you had a more accurate understanding of what their high school context was like. So anyway, I think those are really interesting questions about like what kind of context information people have, what do they think about in a holistic process in which like context is just as important as the information that you're getting from the individual application. So what did you learn? So what did I learn? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to try <laughs> to keep it... What did we learn? What did we learn? Yeah. So I'm going to keep it as short as possible, but... Um, so basically what, uh, so you participated, so right. you admitted it. Um, yeah, it normally it's a confidential process. Yeah. Um, so, and so, yeah. <laughs> so there were three applications that you, actually in your three were four, I believe, four applications. One of your applications was for a student from a low-income school who did really com- well compared to other students at his high school, but wasn't doing as well as compared to some other applications you were reading from kids who came from more privileged backgrounds. And so the thing that we were checking is you either got a lot of information about their context or you got a more limited information about their context. Mm-hmm. So in the more limited information, it was more similar to what you would have with your common application overlay, basically, like the context information you get in common app. Mm-hmm. And in the more detailed information, you got information that you might like to have but isn't normally available in your common app. That, um, and so, depending on which, we were looking to see, like, if you had more information, better quality information, were you more likely to admit that low-income student in your, in your pool of applications than you would have if you had the more limited information? We found that, yeah, yeah, you're about, th- uh, people like you, were about 13 to 14 percentage points more likely to admit a low-income application if they just had better, more accurate information about the high school. Any kind of information in particular that, that, that stood out as being particularly meaningful to, to making that decision? So, I think that's another study we have to try to figure out. I can say that in that we gave them information like the percentage of students who are free and reduced lunch, the percentage of students who are limited English proficiency, the percentage of the pass rate for AP exams three or above. So we gave them some more detailed information. What exactly, which pieces of that information were the most crucial we need to figure out in a different kind of study. Mm-hmm. But um, So how did you control for bleeding heart liberalism? So we randomly assigned you. So, you know, we knew nothing about you, basically. Um, and so we just randomly assigned you to whether or not you were in the limited condition or in the condition that had better information. So randomization helps us because if you're, let's say you're the bleeding heart liberal and you go to the limited condition, you're still more likely, like you still had enough information 
to know that this kid didn't come from a privileged background. Yeah. Um, but you didn't have like really detailed information about that, right? So as long as you're randomly assigning people to the different conditions, that helps to wipe out some of the biases that people have. It's a pretty powerful tool because I can tell you that it's representative of the admissions officers who participated in our study, right? So if, if the whole pool of admissions officers is more liberal, right? then it's accurate to those people, mm -hmm. right? But it doesn't necessarily mean, like, if your office had um, readers that were more conservative, for example, you were at Hillsdale College, for example, I'd imagine, had more conservative Liberty readers. Liberty or... Yeah, you know, exactly, yeah. Liberty or lots of schools, right? Then they may have had a different response, right? So our goal was to try to get the best representation of admissions officers nationally as selective colleges with whatever biases or that they might have. Um, but, you know, any one particular school might have a different proportion of people or different dispositions yeah so why why did you know why given this amount of information uh, were people more liable to make this decision I think it's because they you know in the holistic process you're supposed to look at an application within the context of the opportunities that are available right 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 but I mean, if you, we generally assume that you know except for the you know small fraction of students who have the capability to go to any number of private schools, students generally don't get to pick where they go to high school. Yeah, right, right. And so you want to see like, hey, do you, you know, are you, are we giving this person a fair chance, basically? Mm -hmm. I think that if you only have a limited p amount of information, you don't have as clear an idea or picture in your head of really what that person's high school experience is like. Whereas if you have better information that you can triangulate, then you can have a clearer picture in your head of what really, what challenges or opportunities that the student might have had in their life. And so then you can, tr then you can give a little bit more of an accurate view of what you think the admissions decision should be. So what do you hope to, 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 to see as a result of, of maybe making these uh, results more, more public? What, what do you hope might change about the, the process or the system? So I'd like to point people's attention to this quality, the quality of this information, because we gave people surveys in the in the uh, study you did, and interestingly, we asked them about context after they had done it, and a lot of people said that they had bad context information, but then they also said that they were perfectly okay with that. What do you mean by that? You so then they would say, so I'd ask them just really like I'd say like what information do you have on students' context in a normal file, mm -hmm. and then I say then we ask them you know um, how. Um, you know, how satisfied are you with the quality of that information? And then we asked them, you know, would you try to get better information if you could? I'm trying to remember exactly the way we said the question. Uh -huh. What we found was that people were not very happy with the quality of information that they had on a normal basis, but that they didn't really see a need to change. Uh -huh. And so we would like to make it clear to people that if you had better information, you actually might make better decisions. The second thing is I'd like to point out that this is part and parcel of a really normal cognitive bias that we have. It's called correspondence bias. I'm going to talk about it a little bit in a session that I do with three. And basically the bias is that we, we tend to think about people as individuals with personalities and dispositions and not so much about the context that they come from. So if you're, a, if you're an admissions officer, an office that has a policy to read holistically, you actually have a normal human bias like to work against what your actual policy and mission is. And so I'd like to get people to understand that this is like a really normal thing and that they might need to either structure the way data are presented or have a better self-awareness about this normal disposition mm -hmm. um, so that they can make better decisions. What did you learn about the degree to which uh, college admissions offices might actually be training people to understand their biases? What I found when I did my field work was that I found that one office did a pr pretty good job of it, and I felt like um, had a good. Even, they didn't think about it in this very like. How'd they do it? Research like, ways. What's a good job of that look like? I think what a good job of that was was about um, 
training people to think about language differently a little bit. You know, one thing I noticed was that when I did field work in different offices was that in some offices, people talked about applicants in a pretty derogatory way sometimes. And I think when you're just constantly judging people, <laughs> you're judging 2,000 people right? a year, yeah. right? It can become kind of normal to start to see people as sort of angels or demons, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. these people are wonderful, I mean, and these people are awful. And really, all you have in front of you are paper. I mean, that's all you have are pieces of paper in front of you. But you start to create these pictures in your head, and I think sometimes those pictures are kind of moral. Yeah. Like, the people who don't do as well, you kind of start to see is unsuccessful or lazy or, you know, just not taking advantage of their opportunities. And, and I think that's maybe a way that people rationalize rejecting people a lot. Yeah. You know, especially at really selective places, you're rejecting so many more people than you're accepting, right? right. And so part of me so wonders... for instance, we say yeah. some version of no to about 70% of 70%, the people that right. So I, and I don't have good data on this, so I'm speculating a little bit here. But I wonder to the degree to which you kind of have to start rationalizing in your head these decisions, right? right. That you're rejecting people for really good reasons. That right. you're rejecting people who deserve to be rejected, right? right? Well, and then um, furthermore, you know, the, the, and I wonder too, the degree to which you take into account whether or not the admissions reader has actually met this person. Like in an interview, uh-huh, right? right? So we, you know, that's something that I always say is, you know, it's like you, if you if you meet the person that is going to be reading your application, boy, if nothing else, it, I, I, am, I am now saying no to a human being, being right. not an application. Right, right. You know? And, and so I didn't really do field work in places where people had met, the, really. I mean, everybody I was doing, they were reading so many applications that they almost never had met the people that they were reading. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really interesting thing would be to see, like, to what extent there is a bias towards people that you met and if there is what is it right you know I was told I interview people for graduate school and so and I and a lot of students want to come and meet me before we make admissions decisions and sometimes I'll be honest with them and say I'd say it hurts you at least as much as it helps you <laughs> You know what I mean and I don't mean that in a mean way but sometimes people convince me they're not ready for graduate school in the interview right and so the other thing that you know we had to go back to your point that you know we have to kind of have some measure of, uh, of I don't know we have to sort of put a mental block on to say that, especially when it comes to like low income kids, right? Mm-hmm. Who are definitely coming from a rough background, who um, may not be academically prepared to go to a place like the University of Rochester, but we know in our heads mm-hmm. there are thousands of places out there where this kid could actually do really well. We just have mm-hmm. to hope that they applied to some of those places mm-hmm. and are gonna turn out okay. Mm-hmm. Because that gets that, that gets difficult. You know, if you're talking to a kid from you know, a, a high school in Westchester County, New York, whose parents are lawyers and doctors, it, he'll be fine, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but but some of these other students that maybe don't have a whole lot of support uh, uh, at home or in their community, you know, you just have to hope it's going to work out. Right. So how do you decide which students who are from a low-income background, from an underserved high school, that you're going to take that you're going to take a risk on? That you're going to say they deserve a spot here, or we want to we want to bring them here. We think they can be successful. That's a great question. I mean, and it's 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 the one we wrestle with a lot. Um, um, because uh, first and foremost, I think, you know, and as I've explored with some other folks in this podcast that, you know, uh, not graduating from college, especially not graduating from college with debt, is like the worst thing in the world. Uh, it's more about can we retain this student mm-hmm. if we admit them? And, you know, will they be successful through that retention period onto graduation? And so we have to have a little bit of confidence in the system that we have, a lot of confidence in the system that we have in place on campus after we pass this student on to the college to say, yes, this student is going to get, like, this will be the 
the amount of help that they'll need. Mm-hmm. There are other students who are like, this is not going to be enough help, and we cannot provide that amount of help, and therefore, because the, so first and foremost, it's academics. I mean, can they do the work? Mm-hmm. Um, so because wait, we what, don't want them to go, right? right. But, but So what data do you have on that? So, I mean, on, on what? So how do you, know, like, when you're looking at an application and you're trying to decide, like, you know, I'm compelled by this application, mm-hmm. but I want to make sure that this is someone who can be successful at Rochester. Yeah. Like, how, like, what data do you have from Rochester to know to make that kind of decision? Well, you know, uh, I probably ha- I have less than other people further down the line mm-hmm. who's, who's, who are really ultimately sort of responsible for this decision, which mm-hmm. is to say, I read it once, mm-hmm. pass it to another person, and then it might actually end up being talked about in a committee review, mm-hmm. and then at the very end of the process, maybe my, my dean is going to be looking at the big list of everybody we've said yes to and further shuffle it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've got a lot of information when it comes to uh, how students who are coming from uh, you know certain backgrounds and with certain grades fare in certain programs. Right, mm-hmm. so that's the other thing. That I, it's, for instance, they're you know, um, Latino boys, mechanical engineering, right? They really want to do engineering. I get mm-hmm. a, a lot of that, right? And so, um, that's really hard. And to that end, we really want to see what kind of preparation they've had in high school in math. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, there tends to be a, a misconception too that you know. Um, there, there isn't a lot of math and engineering for some reason. Like there are a lot of communities who are like, ah, eh, it's just building stuff. It's working. Right, right, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like there's a lot more to it than that. And so making sure that there's that academic background is there. And we have that by looking at, by being familiar with the school, mm-hmm. by by trying to be uh, like ridiculously familiar with the school so that we're not mm-hmm. making the wrong choice here either way. Mm-hmm. Um getting to know the guidance counselor at that school if they if, if we feel like they can be of, of help to us in understanding this mm-hmm. academic context and then talking to them honestly if we're really not sure or if we really feel like we need it having a conversation with them to say do you think this student can do it mm-hmm. if they're on the cusp mm-hmm. we're not doing that for students that look to be sort of clearly right clearly uh, mm-hmm. admissible does so that answer how, your question yeah I'm sort of curious like how you know so often low-income kids right they come from high schools that you probably don't know that well right like because you can only tour so many high schools. Sure, but you, but you, but if you know, and and this is one of the things that happens. I think as you gain experience and as you keep at certain territory mm-hmm. over time, is that even if you don't visit that school, or you may become familiar with the school, or you're familiar with like the district and mm-hmm. you know the policies that they have for graduation. So New York State's got you know the Regents Diploma, right? right? right. And 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 so I know that uh, while we don't necessarily look at the region's scores for admission mm-hmm. you know we do wonder whether there's a if there's a discrepancy between the region score and the grade what's going on there mm-hmm. um, but uh, but sometimes you know you can have you know a lot of good context um, even if you haven't personally like visited the school so yeah that that can be uh, you know that can be a challenge it can be a challenge for brand new admissions counselors mm-hmm. because I mean and we have five in our office this year three more that started last year right. and I mean all the shit that they have to remember just in general it's like you're starting on the road and you have to know everything about the University of Rochester right. and every detail and every and now you have to shift your brain over to knowing how to read an application mm-hmm. and the nuances of a given academic program and how the student is is faring in that given academic program and then of mm-hmm. course I'm sure there's a you know that there's a tendency a bias towards admission you know you mm-hmm. want to say yes mm-hmm. uh, and and that's often the the hard part I think in a selective environment for brand new admissions counselors is to see those students end up not being a yes for mm-hmm. one reason or another but yeah it's right, complicated. Right. it is 
But I would, you know, I would argue that, you know, whatever data that, the, that your university has on student success, that you should push that down to your, you know, to the first reader, right? Because so often I feel like there are these assumptions, like, you know, you read a file and you see something that's not perfect, and you go, well, this person can't succeed here. But you don't actually know that. It's really a comparative judgment. It's really more like, well, I've seen other applications with stronger credentials. So those people are going to succeed. All other things being equal, I've seen the same exact thing with better grades, and they're better. So they're going to succeed, and this person isn't going to succeed. But my guess is that, Raj, your retention rate is probably 90%. It's pretty good. 92, somewhere in that range. Yeah. So you're succeeding with the vast majority of students, right? So in some ways, that whole language of like, can you succeed here or can you not succeed here is the wrong language for a lot of people that you're seeing in in the pool. You just mentioned retention rate. And so Mm -hmm. I know that like our freshman retention rate is 96%, Mm -hmm. you know, in our pool. See, I would underestimate it. You know, and, and, and so is it fair for us to assume that I mean, and I don't know how much you know about this necessarily, but I mean, is it, is it, I, I make the fairly general assumption, but backed up with, you know, the actual four and six year graduation rates, which mm-hmm. are still pretty high, that um, if they do okay in that first year, everything else is going to be, it's going to be generally pretty easy. Hmm. Oh, in terms of them retained. Yeah. Based on academic, you know, on, on, on their academic success and, and, and other factors. And I just, right. I just wonder if... Probably you know, for the average student in your pool, that could definitely be true. I mean, because, you know, if, if you're, you're only losing 4% in the first year, let's say your four-year rate, what, 88 to 92%, um, then, you know, you're, but you, it, that would suggest that you're losing about the same percentage every year, right? Yeah, probably. So. Um, and definitely for low-income students, you know, it, a lot of times it seems to be like, you know, where does this, like, external... Um, event happen right like my father loses a job or my mother gets sick or or whatever and then that is what pushes them out so it's not so much even an academic issue it's really more of this external event that they feel like they have to take care of and they end up dropping out because of that what have you seen as you've done some research across across admissions offices that have been you know some that maybe you would you would characterize as, as best practices in terms of understanding context towards making mm-hmm. more informed and better mm-hmm. decisions when it comes to low income students? So definitely the first thing I'd say I would say was the thing I said before about talking about people's language, because and it seems like a really minor minor thing and it can seem like very PC. <laughs> it's just like, oh, you know, don't talk that way about applicants. But as so one in person, the, so um, people's language in the admissions office. Yeah, literally right. in the admissions office right. when they're I've talking, defi- I've definitely talking about that. applications. I've definitely seen that. And and it's not about being politically correct. It's about when if you talk that way about applications, there can be a tendency to focus too much on the one or two things about an application that are wrong, and not the things that are right about that application. Right? Like no student in four years is perfect. Right? And so. Well, some of them look pretty perfect when you see my application. Yeah, but, but they're not. Let's just say they're not, right? <laughs> they're not. So, um, perfect is not perfect. Right. But let's say a student has a C in, you know, a sophomore class. Like, uh-huh. You know, sometimes people will just look at a C or a D and go like, oh my gosh, we can't admit this person with yeah. Cs or Ds, right? But you don't really know anything right. <laughs> about why that person got that C or the D in this C of As, right? I mean, like in this C of As and B pluses or whatever. So um, I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is to try to train readers not to make premature decisions. So I noticed especially new readers have a tendency to want to um, latch on to an initial decision and then are really reluctant to let go of that decision. Mm-hmm. So they, what we know about cognitively is that people have a tendency to seek out information that confirms their preconceived understandings. Mm-hmm. And so if they come to a decision like this is a no, they're gonna look at the rest of the application in that frame 
and it's going to be really hard to dislodge. Mm-hmm. As opposed if they read the whole file open-minded, right? It doesn't mean that you're admitting more people. Like, you still can only admit 30% of the people you're reading, but it means that you're open to hearing new information that would change your, you know, that, would, that you're open-minded to hearing that way. And you don't have to have an initial judgment changed that's different than being open-minded, right? Right. So you're still going to get to the end of the process and still 30% are yes and 70% are no. Right. But you're open to hearing like, hey, 7 8 through this file, I learned this that this applicant had a major health issue in their sophomore year of high school right. or or whatever it happened to, happens to be that, you know, could move someone from inadmissible to admissible. One of the other things that I wonder if you've ever looked at that I'm always curious about that I've actually talked to people about and in, in, in encouraging them to just get their application in a little bit early mm. is the, uh, the, the the inevitable weariness that the reader feels mm. towards the end of the process and how yeah. that fatigue impacts their decision making. Yeah. I mean, every admissions officer I've ever talked to talks about this problem. Like, <laughs> it's not idiosyncratic to you. And um, I always point out that it's not, I think it's not just fatigue. I think it starts imposing a sameness. I call it sameness. Like, that they start seeing every application as almost indistinguishable from each other. It's just a blur. I remember when I was reading, and I would get to my fifth or sixth hour of reading for the day, and I was, I couldn't remember the file I was reading. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like it just—they just started to bleed together, and so um, I think we don't really help admissions officers very well with some ways to think about how to manage cognitive load. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, during the reading process, where it really can damage your ability to make a good decision because you're just exhausted. I heard that you know I heard this, of course, mm-hmm. out there somewhere, the radio, mm-hmm. that there's a that, that our brains are wired to only really be able to make so many decisions in a given day before mm-hmm. you quickly the quality of your decisions begins to quickly diminish and deteriorate right, right. and that in this digital world like when you think about how many decisions you have to make when when it comes to one email popping into your inbox right. you have to decide do I know this person? Mm-hmm. Uh, do I do I open it? Do I respond mm-hmm. to it? How do I respond? You might you know you've all we've all had those emails where you sit and you work on it forever and then you decide no I'm not even going to send it right. and you're burnt out after just dealing with one single email. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile we're getting emails as we work but we're also reading however many files in a given day and having to make decisions about all of those different pieces of this is insane it's insane it is and this is why i think you've got you know everyone in the world talking about you know helping these kids stand out Mm -hmm. and it's not just because you know everybody's normal and they're the same it's because it's because we've assigned a sameness to Mm -hmm. everybody after hour seven of reading applications yeah right yeah they call it decision fatigue and uh, or some electric ego depletion. Um, yeah, and ego so, depletion. Ego depletion. I've experienced yeah. that. Ego depletion. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, when people don't listen to my podcast. <laughs> it gives you an ego depletion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or you listen to too many podcasts. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Or I listen to better ones. Yeah. Yeah. We need to give people better strategies for how to handle that load. Can that load be spread out more? Can the load? Are there ways to segregate the work? I mean, you were just saying that like you you're reading applications and you're getting emails in your box. You know. You know, I would say ideally you'd be like not re- you'd be doing one or the other, not both. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the data on multitasking ideally. is not good. No, yeah. Well, right? I'm, I'm, but I some can... people's work, but the work expectations are what change what, what controls your ability to do that, right? Yeah. So if someone in your office says you cannot respond to email from eight to twelve in the morning, so that mm-hmm. you can read applications while you're fresh, yeah. and then do email in the afternoon, you know, that could ma- allow you to make different decisions than. If I email you, I expect you to respond by the next five minutes. Did you learn anything about the the, 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 the general 
amount of uh, files that individual offices uh, read? Assign- I did. Yeah. We did ask them that, yeah. yeah. The average admissions officer was reading, hundred and th- I think it was 130 files a week during season. Okay, so that's the average. Yeah. 130 a week. Yes. And, I fa- and then how- what did you learn about the amount of time they spend on each individual application? That seems to vary quite a bit by yeah. office. I'm, I don't remember the average. But what what was this the range? The range, even in my field work, the range went from six to eight minutes to twenty to twenty five minutes. And do you do you have any sense of one being better than the other? I think that actually the people in the six to eight minute office were less stressed <laughs> because the way the data were presented to them when they read applications was a lot more efficient. Like the data was processed basically. Yeah. And it was also an office that had um, where um, the applications were pre, um, the students filled out all of their transcript information uh-huh. um, in, in, the app, you know, in the system. It wasn't like a PDF of the transcript being pushed to the admissions officer. And so it was a lot more efficient to do their reading mm-hmm. and you know, the kind of like scanning across. You know, when you, as you know, when you're doing, you know, reading all these different kinds of transcripts and they're not in a standardized form, it's a lot harder to do that kind of scan across that it is if it's more in a standardized form. And I found, you know, I mean, I, I was on a, an admissions panel uh, at a school in New Jersey where a parent asked each of us how much time we spent on applications. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. I think in general they were sort of aghast, you know. At oh, the how fact well that, Well, when you, you know, yeah. because the, 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 the problem being that, you know, their kids are spending an ungodly amount of time getting ready for this. Right, right, uh, yes. Meanwhile, you're spending... You know, yeah. 15 minutes on this? Right. Yeah. Uh, well, yes, yeah, sir, I am. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's a hard life, right? Yeah. But the other thing, too, is that, you know, we, we also kind of know what to look for. And we're, That's right. We're yeah. scanning in an educated way. Right. And if I need to spend more time on something because I need to understand it further, I can. Right. You know, it's not like we're just... You know, callously, you know, chucking darts at a at a list, and <laughs> right. you know, those guys get in. You know, right, right, yeah. I know. I'm sure it's very depressing to to families to to hear that from people. But well, I just, especially, you know, the and, and I wonder about different parts of the application being, you know, more meaningful or less meaningful than others in terms of making a decision. And to what degree we talk about holistic admission in 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 a way that's uh, that's honest. Like, are we okay? Holistic. I mean, everything that we look at is is goes into the into the mm-hmm. the, the soup you know but um, I, I am personally guilty of really not caring too much about the essay mm-hmm. I just don't think many of them are good enough to make a huge difference they tend right. to generally collect around this very safe mean of of, of you know not controversial mm-hmm. just enough to learn something about me that I just I scan it and move on because I get the point and I don't you know but meanwhile there's a cottage industry in there <laughs> uh, I'm pointing to the convention <laughs> yeah. hall uh, you know where the where the exhibitors are of, of you know essay writing gurus right. and stuff right they want to spend all this time helping students write the perfect essay and I'm like it's 500 words mm-hmm. you know you're spending way too much time um, focusing on this and not focusing on school and right, learning, right, right. you know, give it up. Right, because it becomes a gaming thing, yeah. I don't think what you're describing, is, I mean, that's pretty common with admissions officers. I mean, that I've interviewed and my own experience, you know, reading files too, you know, where, you know, you start to look for, you look, you start to look at essays as information. Like, it's, it's information that either, like, helps you make a decision or doesn't. And if it's not helping you make a decision, your brain starts to discount that information. Not because you 
dislike it necessarily. I mean, on occasion, you're going to get the essay where a student says, you know, something racist or inappropriate or something, and Correct. and it is going to damage their I ability. Th- yeah, but that's right. incredibly I've, rare. Yeah, I've, I, I I do this thing where um, I show kids this this uh, this uh, graph of um, you know degree of honesty. You know, moving from left to right, mm-hmm. and the um, admission reader's interest and how it correlates to that, mm-hmm. and it goes up <laughs> as the mm-hmm. honesty goes up, mm-hmm. at, which in the end of the cliff being oversharing. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. And the boy, we're super interested in those. Right. That's the uh, that's the student last year who actually decided it would be a good idea to write her her college essay about her favorite adult film stars. Oh. Yeah. A memorable Over, oversharing yes. super memorable. memorable probably didn't get admitted <laughs> this person is, is a lot um but yeah it's uh i don't know it's interesting mm-hmm. so when you did you know do you feel what did where did you leave like your own feelings about this process after you did this research are you hopeful do you feel like we're generally doing the right thing or is there mm-hmm. you know yes but always room for improvement or <laughs> this is all just a right. gigantic mess and it needs to be ripped from top to bottom no i well, I'm a professor, right? So I don't, you know, I don't give good sound bites. But um, <laughs> I, so far, I disagree. <laughs> I, love this. Um, I would say that I, in in a lot of ways, I was really impressed. Like I felt like a lot of t- I I saw a, a deep care from almost everyone that I interacted with at making about making good decisions, um, and so that was impressive to me. And it wasn't really beaten down from the amount of work. Like, you know, when people describe their work lives to me, especially during season, but season almost, I mean, then when people would describe when the season was, it was almost all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so in some ways the whole phrase season is is not very descriptive because it really can run about 10 months. Yeah. Um, it's like rainy and non. You know? <laughs> it's pretty much, that's how it yeah, works. Yeah, between early admission and then even after admission and dealing with high school counselors and yeah, phone got, calls you know, and parent phone calls and transfers. And, yeah. and, you know, it really runs pretty much the whole year. And so, um, so you know, I think that people really care a lot. And it's not, when I, when, I'm, when I say things about bias, I don't mean them in a way that it's like people have the wrong values. And a lot of times people think that biases come from bad values. No, it's not that it's about like cognitive load and, and people's ability to make good decisions and really like stressed environments basically um so yeah but i do i feel like the room for improvement yeah i do i mean when i talk when i talk to admissions officers and they don't seem to be that reflective on the kinds of information that they have and how good that information could be that's a little frustrating to me right like i i want to get people out of this box i sometimes i describe it admissions decisions as a competency trap Meaning that the way that admissions have been done has been pretty stable for 30 or 40 years. And it's gotten to be very good at what it does in that particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes that precludes people to think about any other way to do them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the other ways have been bad ideas. <laughs> so I'm not necessarily an advocate for like going to some extreme experimental way of doing admission. But I hope people are just open-minded to th- reflecting on their own practice. And thinking about how they can be better at what they do. Um, so if we are, if, if if we say that there's room for improvement and that the room for improvement is 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 generally the benefits of that would be improvement would accrue to low income students. I think so, but I think also too. I think we can train people to make the reading process 
both more efficient and more equitable. Meaning that I feel like if we work on the ways that information is presented to people and designed, we can also make the job a more satisfying experience for admissions officers with less cognitive stress and load um, over time if we really think through that. I think sometimes there hasn't been a lot of thought to like the actual information design. Yeah. And if you're reading only a few thousand applications, then that's not such a big deal. Yeah. But when, as you're, if you're in one of these offices with, you know, you're at 30, 40, I assume what you're about 30,000 applications maybe. No, we're quite set. We're, we, I'm sure, you know, our president and board would like us to, uh, to be able to report that. But no, we, we, we get about 16,000, 17,000 applications a year. Yeah. So, and of course, it's really more has to do with the ratio of admissions officers to applications. That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, if you're reading, you know, so many more applications, then the way information is presented to you actually becomes super important in your ability to deal with that well. And, you know, th as you were saying, you know, you what you said you have five new admissions officers in your That's office, right. which is pretty normal as far sure. as I can tell. But we might wonder why this is a field that has such incredible turnover. You know, I will say it's rare for we, we for Rochester, but it's not rare for the industry. Right, a lot of people. Right. Yeah. So you know. Well, I mean, we tend to you know we, we, we hire folks right out of college because they're super enthusiastic about it and they're great representatives. You know, and maybe it's a, a, a there's a bit, a bit of you know uh, are, are they are they necessarily right. Uh, as both a recruiter and a reader, you right, know? Um, which and, are really different skill sets. Exactly, and right. I would say that you know the, the the tour guide right out of college, you're not going to find a better recruiter. Mm -hmm. But when you think about this, and I have, I am really, really glad that we got to talk and that, that mm -hmm. I could that I could learn about this from you because I haven't really. I mean, you know, because we just, you just do it. It's a grind, right? You sit down and, oh, here it is again. Time to read applications. And I don't. I, I would venture to guess that most places are not thinking at this level of depth about how we just get through this process in a way that is most beneficial to the students. Um, uh, that uh, it's. I, I would like to believe that you know that we're doing the right thing, but that um, we're not. I don't. Th I, I can't say that we're training even our seasoned admissions counselors, let alone our brand new ones, about um, uh, this level of, you know, cognitive bias and load and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And I think it's it's really, really valuable to know that these things are at stake and at play so that we can consider it. Right. Well, thank Yeah, I, I think it's important. And I would like to w start working with some admissions offices about working on ways Sign to us up. think about training and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Learn, love to. I'm, I'm, I think there's. I have almost no authority to uh, <laughs> have actually said that, but sign us up anyways. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Maybe I'll send you an email. Yeah, sounds good. Um, thanks a lot for talking to me. Sure, thank you. Anything I'm glad you're else, interested. Anything else you wanted to? Share if people anything? are more interested in the work, I have a website with my research on it, and I try to put it up there as it's available. And I'm also working on some shorter, um, you know, policy briefs, yes. so people don't have to read a 30-page or 40-page article to understand what the research is about. Um, so to make it, you know, so that the ideas can get out there in a better way. What's the website? Um, it is www.umich.edu/slash. Uh, Tilde Bastido. All right. Or just put my name, Michael Bastido, in Google. That's the easiest Tilde way, Tilde is the little thing that goes over the N in Spanish Exactly, class, yes. So Tilde Bastido. All right. <laughs> yeah, it's an easy way to think of it. Cool. Are you a Michigan football fan? I absolutely am. Oh, man. This has got to be rough for you. I'm being surrounded. Ohio State. I am absolutely surrounded yeah. by these people. I don't, I don't, I can barely even handle it. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're super excited about this season, so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well. Great discussion. Too bad about the Michigan football team's season this year, I guess, although I'm not a 
huge Jim Harbaugh guy. I just I just feel bad for for Dr. Bastido. Uh, so I hope that this helped illuminate the process a bit more as opposed to enhance the panic all around it. We love what we do, and it's hard, fatiguing work this time of year, so hug your local admissions counselor when you see them because uh, chances are they are sleep-deprived and a little on edge, maybe gained some weight as they uh, skip meals and skip cooking them, certainly in favor of ordering food that uh, might just sort of be helping him get through this process um, emotionally, if, if not like nutritionally. Um, and thanks for your patience to loyal 17 listeners as I put this project on hold to uh, deplete my own uh, gastrointestinal system in addition to my ego under the weight of uh, applications that have flooded our way over the last few months. But also as I gathered myself after joining in the majority of Americans and other global citizens that thought there was no way Donald Trump could get elected. And um, I'll admit it definitely took the uh, wind out of my sails in a major way and it still is as we get these daily reminders of the consequences of the election and as you may imagine it probably doesn't make me feel super great Uh, maybe you either but for me it underscores the value of our work and apropos the conversation with Dr. Bassito we live in a biased society not really necessarily because we've built it to be this way but, but we have Um, but also because we're human beings. And it's clear to me that understanding that these exist and that these things are normal is a huge step towards understanding when biases can help and when they can hurt. We in admissions try to do the opposite of what I'm witnessing from our national leadership, which is that we try to put as many different kinds of people together as possible in tight spaces, even classrooms and dorms. And then we tell them to talk about the hardest things that humanity has ever come up with. And we believe that they come out better humans on the other side of this experience. All the talk of uh, safe spaces and uh, things like that, in my opinion, has has blown out of proportion uh, the degree to which really difficult subjects are being constantly discussed in colleges and how much that matters to our society. So uh, at any rate, thanks for listening and uh, spread love. Talk to you next time.